singing what we believe is so important. And I wanted to kind of use that this morning to talk about um, a couple of things. We've been sharing with you a week in and week out about building updates. I have nothing to report this week. Right now, we're officially waiting for the sellers to come back to us with a contract that has the stuff in it we need so we can sign and then see if God has that in, uh, in that, that property for us in our future. Um, but something else I want to remind you of, because there's always a thousand moving parts, right, in life. Like, not just in church, but in life. And one of the other things we've been praying for is that God would bring a worship leader to us to lead us in worship as Dan steps back from his role. He's such a fantastically gifted worship leader, and I'm not just saying that to brag on you, Dan. I mean, I love your heart. I love the way you lead us in worship. But I, know, I also know you've been here a long time, and you told us a long time, like months ago, hey, you guys, find somebody I want to step back from this. And I want us to be praying because we have seen through your faithful prayers, God answer those prayers um, in regards to a building. And so I'm going to ask you, um, to, to begin, continue to pray for the building, but begin to pray, or maybe you have been, for that God would call a worship leader of his choosing here, right? I mean, it's, it's one of those things where it's hard to even imagine Family Bible Church without X, Y, or Z, and one of those things for me is Dan leading worship. It's hard to imagine at this point, but I think God has somebody for that, and so would you join us in praying for that? So let's pray together about these two opportunities we have. Father God, I thank you so much for this morning, and I'm, I'm like that putty, Father, just, just you know, warm in your presence, in the presence of your people and encouraged. I do pray, Father, I continue to pray with my brothers and sisters here this morning that you would bring clarity to this building process. It is um, in, enduring, it seems. It's an enduring process and um, help us to be faithful through it, but help us to uh, and be patient to wait on you. But Father, would you uh, continue to give us favor in that if it is not your intention, would you stop the process? And if it is, would you call us to perseverance until the day comes that we, we come to closure in that process, Father? Um, I, I uh, pray, Father, that if that is your plan for us, it would be ultimately for more uh, enduring ministry in this community, gospel ministry, we could proclaim uniquely at Family Bible, your gospel, um, along with our brothers and sisters who proclaim it in other churches, that we would proclaim, hit our note of your gospel, that people might come to know you as Lord and Savior, and that we might come to grow more in you as disciples of yours, that you would teach us in that way. So if that's your will for us, Father, we ask that you would uh, continue to give us grace and uh, favor with the uh, sellers of the building. And then, Father, you've heard me say all these words. I don't say them again to you. But, Father, you're a man, you're a woman called into this ministry, Father. We just want to surrender into your hands. I thank you already for brothers and sisters who are here this morning committing to pray over this with us that you might be glorified, that we might all be amazed at what you would do. And so as we've been putting out these uh, descriptions and, uh, you know, having these conversations, Father, that your Holy Spirit be guiding these opportunities that your purposes would be done amongst us and that we could all stand in awe of you and just worship you together. Uh, thank you so much, Father, for your faithfulness to us through all these years and the years to come until Jesus comes again and you were always with us. We give you praise and glory and thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. So I'm going to press on here. Uh, we are continuing our study of the book of Acts. We are making uh, good progress here in the, God, in the book of Acts. It's been an awesome journey. I hope you've been blessed by it. And we're going to continue this morning uh, in it. Uh, as I'm, we're getting in today, if you noticed on your engagement sheets, it's, the title is Gospel Riot. 
And uh, I was thinking counterintuitively about a, a riot and what it means, like the chaos that it comes with riot, you know, and unrest and all those things. And we're going to hear from the book of Acts about a riot this morning, right? But I was thinking about what Jesus said. Uh, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be shown to be children of God right? Blessed are those who are peacemakers. As a matter of fact, in the Christian tradition, a lot of times, that's where people root their idea of pacifism. They're pacifists. They're peacemakers. They, they don't want to take up arms or war for any purpose, um, and they think that that's fulfilling uh, that, that command, or that, mm, it's not a command, right, but that uh, happiness quotient, that blessed are those who are making peace, and in thinking that through and thinking what the Apostle Paul and others, but we've been talking so much about the Apostle Paul has done to further the gospel, does the gospel require confrontation? How many of y'all are here this morning and you're a peacemaker, like naturally? I'm not meaning like you're like, but I mean, you kind of like to make peace. You don't like conflict. I know. Some of you don't raise your hand that you're like, I don't want to separate myself from this group of people by. <laughs> How many of you have no problem with conflict? At all. Yes, <laughs> some of us. <laughs> and the peacemakers go, what's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, does the gospel require confrontation? I mean, is it a necessary side effect of the gospel that things are going to be disrupted? That's the question we're going to ask today as we look into the scripture. And we're going to uh, do what we always do. We're going to pray again. I'm going to pray that God would inspire us to understand his scripture. We believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And we believe that you can learn from it every day of your life, not just in church, but every day of your life by reading it, studying it, thinking deeply about it, praying over it, and asking God to reveal truth through it. We don't believe it's like any other book. It's not like any other book in the world. It's uniquely inspired by God. And because of that, when we come into it to read it, study it, understand it, we pray that God would inspire us to understand it as he intends. Does that make sense? So we're going to do that if you want to do it with me. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much that we are in your presence this morning, in your house, worshiping your name. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that, that you, by your grace and mercy and through the power of your Holy Spirit that you sent to be our counselor and instructor, would instruct us through your word this morning. That the pages uh, that we read from would not just be ordinary experience, but they would be uh, life. That they would be words from you to our thirsty souls and that we could know you more fully in this morning, in this way. Um, we make this audacious request because you've said we should seek you and ask you for it. Ask you for yourself. And so would you, Father, give us yourself this morning through your word that we might grow and become more like you. Um, help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear, minds to comprehend, and lives to live out the truth we experience today. We trust you with it, and we pray the prayer in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise God. So we're going to be looking at the book of Acts chapter 19, 19 starting in verse 23, which is where we left off last week. And we're just going to kind of read through and talk as we go here. So remember, um, we're in the middle of Paul's missionary journeys and stuff, and we're just going to pick up where we left off in 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. The way is interesting here in the way it's used in, this, in the scripture. You'll maybe hear a few people in these times talking about the way of Jesus, but the way means the road, the journey, the process, right? And, and it, it's interesting because you could read that as um, about that time there was a great disturbance about the road, but it wouldn't make as much sense, right? Like they're saying there's an in an inference that it's about this journey with Jesus. There's this great disturbance, and that's where we got our question this morning, right there in 23, about a great disturbance arising about the way. 
Um, a silversmith named Demetrius, <laughs> that's my, my favorite name is why Demetrius, just for the record, there it is, um, who made silver shrines of Artemis, uh, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them the craftsmen together, along with the workmen in the related trades, and he said, Men, you know that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led many astray in large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. This is the concern that the silversmith has, right? And so he's kind of saying, the gospel is causing a problem. By the way, that very first um, line says, about the time, it's like at the same time, which is that idea of a thousand things happening it once, right? We can maybe silo the book of Acts or the experience of the apostles and say this happened, then this happened, then this happened. I guarantee you human, humanly they were experiencing everything at the same time, right? Like we do. And at the same time this is happening. And so and so you have this uh, concern that's being expressed by Demetrius, uh, a silversmith who is a kind of a tradesman amongst other tradesmen. And this is an interesting bit of scripture that I've always been stunned by because of how counterintuitive it is. But I wanted to say this morning that um, false gods are bad business. Now that will seem obvious in a church setting. Like they shall say, well, yes, false gods are bad business, right? That's true. I'm with you, right? But the truth is that gospel can be bad for business. We've already heard last week, Mira said at the same time, they burn like millions of dollars worth of scrolls because of their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. This was a sorcery. It was not of God. It was not honoring to God. And they destroyed the stuff because they didn't want any part of it anymore. They willingly destroyed stuff. And so we kind of come out of that context. At the same time, there's a great disturbance about the gospel or about the way. And the silversmith uh, lines it up. Another thread that we see continually through here is um, this counterintuitive, is that the right word? This way that the writer, the author, talks to us in an inverse way. Instead of saying there was a great disturbance, which maybe your translation says there was a great disturbance, right? It, the Greek actually reads, there was no small disturbance. You know, like, it's like this, uh, what do you call that? When you, you know, infer something, it's, it's almost um, not quite sarcasm, right? But it's close <laughs> in the Bible. This idea that it was no small thing. This is a, a, a creating a big disturbance. Now, what's at stake here? Well, the silversmith kind of lays it out here, Demetrius, our man, and he says uh, he's a, a maker of the silver shrines of Artemis. And real quick, I did not do Greek history, God stuff in high school and like that. I don't have any experience in that particularly. So I had to go and look this up. And apparently um, Artemis, and some of you will correct me on this, right, um, was supposed to be the twin of Apollos. And as a twin, and just to give you a little bit of weirdness about whatever, was born and moments later helped deliver her brother, her twin brother. Helped her mother deliver her brother. Anyway, Greek God stuff, right? But was then known to be the goddess of fertility, the goddess of, um, uh, there was some kind of a bear thing where a bear clawed out a virgin's eyes. And so when you were a young woman, you had to go to the temple of Artemis here in Ephesus. And you had to serve for a year in place of the bear. I don't know if that means you crawled around like a bear or you growled. I don't know what that meant for young women, 
but you had to go there as a young woman to the temple in Ephesus. But get this, it was huge. It was not like a small, like one of many. It was a huge temple in Ephesus um, to Artemis. And so this dude and the other tradesmen have made a full business around this false uh, religion. And I'm going to say false religion because I think that's where the Bible lays it out. But they had built up. Can you imagine? So you have this thing that people are worshiping, and then you begin to kind of tie your livelihood to it, right? And then all this stuff built up around it, and all these people... And what's interesting to me is that he's making shrines out of silver. He's a silversmith, right? That are intended um, to bring God to your home. That's how I read that. I don't know that he was making, this, uh, uh, building the temple and the, the big part. I'm sure maybe he had a hand in that or something. But he was, there's this idea that he was a tradesman and they would, people would come to Ephesus and they would get a souvenir, they would take home. No, they would take home a small altar or a small, what does the word say, um, uh, a shrine. They would they could take a shrine that they could t- take home, and they could put in their house, and they could worship it. I don't know if you've read the Bible before, but unless that worship is authentic with God, it's idolatry, right? That you have this this thing you bring home, and, and that's what's happening. But the concern is that, look, we have received a good income from this business. That's in verse 25. We have received a good income from this business. So one of uh, Demetrius' concerns is this gospel is going to cost us our livelihood. We are making money off of um, uh, this uh, shrine, and it's going to cost us our livelihood. We have financial concerns. That's one of the things that Demetrius lays out. By the way, he's right. You know, all that's left of this great and grand temple is a stack of rock. That's all that's left right now. Some shards, they finally stacked them up into a column there. It's just a big hole in the ground. So he, he, was, he was saying, this is going to cost us. Uh, and, and by the way, here's another place where that ironic language is used. It says, um, the shrines have brought us no little business. <laughs> and no little business. As a matter of fact, we're getting rich from the shrine. And we ought to be concerned about this gospel because it threatens the shrine. But then, not just a, um, a, a business problem. If we read on here, it says, you know we receive a good income. That's the business problem. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and uh, led astray a large number of people in Ephesus right here, our Ephesians, and is practically the whole province of Asia. I, I just want to mention to you, when the gospel door was closed to Asia, we said this last week, but here it is again. The Ephesians are going, man, the entire place is being turned over to the gospel. All of Asia is being converted to the gospel, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. Um, there is danger not only to our trade then, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, that this place will not be important anymore. And just to get everyone included here, uh, um, the goddess herself will lose her divinity. That's what he says. Will no longer be worshipped. And she's been worshipped throughout the entire province of Asia all the years. And the goddess is going to lose her divinity in this process. So he kind of lays out a threefold problem that he says. You know, it's bad for uh, business, uh, financially for us. It's bad for the temple because the temple is not going to be maintained anymore. And it's bad for the goddess because the goddess is going to lose her divinity in this process, right? I have a hard time... I'm just going to give him credit that that's really what he believes is all those things are really going to happen. But I think maybe he was just trying to find a way to mask his concerns. 
But here's the funny thing. I, I said uh, false gods are bad business, right? And it's easy to condemn Demetrius and the silversmiths because they're making a living this way. It's easy to say, oh, they're making those false gods. But here's the thing, right? Like, um, well, I'll say a couple things. Force is, do you see it in our life today? Do you see it in our lives today where those, those places crop up? I see it all the time. I'm a pastor in a church, right? All the time that these, there's these businesses that kind of begin to bubble up around communities of faith to serve them, and they are serving the community of faith. But isn't it interesting how they, you know, that, that becomes dependent? But, but more importantly than that, perhaps, because maybe many of you don't work in the Christian field, I guess, or whatever. I mean, you do work in the Christian field. You know what I'm saying? Like, you don't feel like you're vocationally called. I think you're vocationally called anyway. But listen, we can turn our workplace into an idol factory. Right? That's the harder thing to figure here. Like, it's easy for us to begin to say to ourselves, man, if the gospel is true, then the thing that I am doing is, is not serving the gospel or uh, is, it, it, I'm trying to think how to say this, that we begin to proclaim what we do for a living, which is so important to who we are, right, as if it is the ultimate thing. Does that make sense? As if this is the most important thing. And we lose all perspective about the great God who has, you know, uh, made us and who has given us everything. And, and we begin to do what these silversmiths do. We begin to craft little gods that we say, oh, this will save you. I, I've made this for you. This will help. Uh, this is the most important thing. And that's a tricky thing to figure out, but that's the truth, that we can all become little like silversmiths making our little gods and sending people out with our little gods to say, go home and worship the little god and you'll be fine, instead of staying back in awe of the big god who's over everything and saying, let it just fall in May. So that's a problem for, for us. Because the truth is that false gods are bad business. And, it, and I remember one time I was talking to a friend of mine and they said, well, you know, what if, what if uh, the shrine in the house, what if that, that is, God is glorified today? What if uh, all the different ways that God's, you know, all the different religions of the world, like what if those are all the same, you know, like, I mean, and, and then I go, hey, you read the Bible, right? If that's true, then God's a liar. Because the first command he gives is, I am the Lord your God, have no false gods before me. And so this idea that if the business of false gods is okay, if everything, all roads lead to the same mountaintop experience, right? Then the reality is that at the end, when he meets us face to face, he goes, surprise, just kidding. But I don't find that God in the Bible. I don't find the just kidding God. I find a God that says, no, don't have false gods. So what's the application, Right? Um, the scriptures uh, commend us to do everything as unto the Lord. Do all work as unto the Lord. That means that we should be always serving under this veil of his authority and, and his supremacy in all things. And things that are not, that are setting up false gods for us or other people in our hearts, ought not to be done. Right? doesn't mean you can't work in different fields. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying your work ought to be, ought to be as unto the Lord. That whatever we're producing in a day, our ultimate hope is always in the God who made us and the Savior Jesus Christ who's been sent to redeem us. And, and so that's the reality of, of what we're called to do. But the business of false gods is a bad business to be in. Okay? 
Now, Paul said something right in the middle of this that, that's really the kind of hitch in the, in the, uh, the, the pin in the hitch or whatever that kind of connects it all together. He says, and you see in here, this is in verse 20, I think, my eyes, 26, and you see in here that this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray a great number of that's actually no small number of people here in Ephesus in, in the whole province of Asia. And this is what he says. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. I love that line. It, it, it's always a little sketchy to take someone, someone who's been an, an adversary as what, you know, but a lot of times there's truth in it, right? And what he's saying is that Paul's teaching that gods that you can make with your hands are no gods at all. That they aren't gods at all. And that, again, might seem obvious to us, but listen, it's not obvious to the world. There are still, to this day, people who craft gods out of their own hands and then worship them. And it's overt. It's, it's literal. But again, to go back to that point, many of us will craft gods out of our own hands and will worship them. Let me, again... And man-made gods are no gods at all. God, this is how I want things to be. I want it just like that. And then we worship it, and we give everything to this thing we want. And we leave out the truth of the big G God, the big G God, right? All these things we pursue and run after. Man-made gods are no God at all. And so he, he's not just saying like passively, and I think that that's probably an accurate understanding. I think that the, the uh, dude Demetrius was getting it right when he was kind of saying, this is what Paul has led people to believe. And by the way, when he says that Paul led them to believe it, it means that he caused them to change where they stand. Before they stood here, Artemis, God of fertility, send my daughter to the temple, do all these things you have to do, right? You know, oh, Artemis, may I have mercy. Whatever they did, right? And then Paul persuaded or convinced them to stop standing here and to move over here and stand on the side of the true God who made all of heaven and earth, who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, that we might have life and have it to the fullest, and we might be free of slavery, of false doctrine and false teaching and false gods. And he had moved them. They weren't over there anymore. And Demetrius saw that was true. But it's important, man. Man-made gods are no gods at all. So here's my question then. What temptation do you and I have in our lives to make gods with our own hands and then believe in them? Right? What temptations do we have to, to be living our life and begin to craft our vision for what we want and then begin to worship that instead of worshiping the God who made us and everything else? Right? We sang a song this morning. I told you about good doctrine and, and singing. The line that stood out. You are perfect in all of your ways. You're perfect in all of your ways to us. And when you think about a oh, life that's not going exactly how you planned it, things are not looking exactly the way you wanted it to be, and then we sing a song that says, no, it's perfect in all of your ways. You're perfect in all your ways to us. That means when we're going through hardship or suffering, when we're having great experiences or terrible experiences, when things are, you know, we had a vision and it's coming through, we had a vision and we're completely out in the weeds. God is perfect. I found myself this morning just resting in that reality that God is so much bigger, bigger than we could ever hope for or imagine. He's perfect in all his ways and everything is being coordinated. The true God, the big G God, 
But we all have temptations. What are they for you? All right. Picking up again here in verse 28. When they heard this, they were furious and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. A couple things we'll talk about there in a second. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and uh, Artiscus, okay, and Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and they rushed as one man into the theater. I'm going to stop there for a minute. So they, when, they, when they heard this, they got worked into a lather, right? They got really, Demetrius did his job. He stirred the pot, and boy, they're boiling. They're, they're freaking out a little bit here. And this is when they heard this, they were furious, and they began to scream. And look what they began to do. Profess with their mouths some things that they wanted to be true because they were afraid of what was, what was being proclaimed. They were like, we will not. We, they began to chant. You ever seen people try to begin to chant? You know, um, sometimes it doesn't work. <laughs> it's awkward or whatever. They began to scream, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I only see two things they're proclaiming there. The God is great and this place is great, right? Ephesus, us. We are great and God is great. This God that we've been worshiping. And they began to scream it. And there's this idea almost that they thought that by raising their voices in this fever of fear, by raising their voices and getting louder and louder, they could drown out the conversation. They wouldn't have to listen to it anymore. It gets worse, by the way, that idea of not listening anymore. It does get worse here. But they literally cause a riot. Oh, by the way, which is the point, right, is that sometimes the gospel may cause a riot, right? It literally caused a riot in Ephesus, the gospel that Paul has been preaching and teaching for a while. And uh, again, many of us think, well, wait a minute, how is that to be so? But you can see right here, it's, it's laid out. Um, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar, right? Um, the people seized Gaius and uh, Aristarchus. I don't know why I'm having a time with that this morning. Uh, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and they rushed as one man into the theater. By the way, someone else knows that, that the protesting was immediately uh, dramatic, you know, they literally were protesting in the streets, and they're like, let's just go to the Coliseum, or let's just go to the theater, let's just go to the arena, let's just go to the stadium, right? And they kind of got themselves all worked up. It's this place of um, uh, public discourse, a place that where they could have, have it out and hash it out and let themselves be known. This is kind of the equivalent of like a sit-in, I guess. I mean, it's, again, you don't have to use your imagination too much to see what this, because this is what happens today, right? We're going to go and we're going we're gonna, to, you know, stop things. We're going to shut things down, right? Shut it down, shut it down. You know what I mean? But they were screaming, you know, great is Artemis and great is of the Ephesians. And they were kind of just stuck in this thing, and they were afraid of what might be happening. And so, uh, so the gospel caused a riot, which I think is kind of interesting. They were filled with rage, they were filled with rage at this idea. They were shouting at the top of their lungs. And then they grabbed these two traveling companions that Paul had. And then they dragged them into the theater, right? They rushed into the theater as one man. So this whole body of people just began to have, some people maybe call it group think, right? They began to all think alike. Yes, we must stop this right now. And they just dragged these companions into the theater to have it out. This goes on for a long time. Matter of fact, we get an idea of how long this goes on um, because it says, Paul, this is in verse 30, wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him go. Okay, that makes sense. So Paul's seeing this all going down. He's like, let me go talk to him. <laughs> it was kind of funny because you always think, Paul, that's the problem. <laughs> You've been talking to him. You know? Paul's like, no, no, I got this. I got this. Let me go have a word real quick. Right? But the disciples, those who were learning about Jesus, would not let Paul go. But then look at 31. 
Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, that's rulers in that area, sent a message begging Paul not to venture into the theater. I'm just saying that by context, that means that this shenanigan went out long enough that someone wrote a letter and had a carrier delivered to Paul in the city saying, don't go, please don't go. So this is no small uh, riot. This is no small riot, no small uproar, which is what the text says. It was no small uproar. And so, uh, so, he's, so Paul's being encouraged not to go by disciples and not to go by officials. Just, just let it go, Paul. I mean, it's a mess. Let it go, right? Okay. So that's interesting to me, that the gospel can, uh, can cause a riot. Um, and again, it was a huge event, and it was full of drama, and the whole city, the word says, was in chaos. The whole city was in chaos over the gospel being proclaimed there. And I can't help but say again, as we move through this, and it's not that they were wrong. See, we, 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 we can kind of want to saw something and go, well, what's wrong with the Ephesians? Just let them, you know, live and let live. Preach and let preach, right? No, 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 no. The Ephesians rightly understood this is going to change everything for us. I mean, at the very least, you have to give them credit for understanding the truth of the gospel and the, and the way, and not only were they thinking it was going to happen, but they had seen it happen in people's lives. People's lives were lived differently. What? That means we're not going to live where we lived before? We're not going to chase things we chased before? Everything's going to change. I might lose my job because of this. And that's exactly what the gospel proclamation is doing in Ephesus, in people's lives practically. So at least they got that right. But it caused the riot. Verse 32 then. The assembly was in confusion. And some of them were shouting one thing and some were shouting another. Right? So they had the chance weren't really going together. They were kind of, but this is my favorite line, guys. This is so funny. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. <laughs> Like, I don't know if you think the Bible is funny, but I think that's funny. I mean, just indulge me for a minute. But you're a guy, and you're a girl, and you're in Ephesus, and you see a crowd, and you start to look, what's going on over here? And all of a sudden, everybody's going to the theater. And then you got people going, you know, give me red, give me black, give me red, give me black. And you're like, what are these people talking about? And somebody goes, I don't know why I'm here. That's not what the Bible says. It says most of the people didn't know why they were there. I'm just going with the crowd. I have no idea why I'm here. I have no conviction about this. I'm not, I'm not a, making shrines, you know. Isn't that funny that that's in Scripture? I think that's so funny. I'm just like, I love the humor of that. Most of those people had no idea why they were there. Like, who is this Paul? What are you talking about? Well, let's just go along and see. And this is funny because, uh, by the way, this is our next blank here, right, is that uh, protesters can be confused. Now, here's the funny thing about it. You can read this. You can get really mad at the rioters. You can say, oh, you people are against the gospel, and you're against all these things, and you know, get really mad at them. You evil people. You're evil. You're rioting and breaking stuff and all that. But they're just confused. They don't know why they're doing it. They're just they're doing it. And it's kind of funny because in, in, a fun, in a weird way, right? I mean, that gives us grace toward them, doesn't it? A little bit more grace. Like, oh, you're confused. You don't even know why you're here, do you? Many times that is the case, uh, that <laughs> people are just confused, and that's what the word says, that they didn't even know, they didn't know why they were there. Just went with the crowd. By the way, I started to say a couple of things that you can uh, think about with how we function as people is, um, uh, I've seen this happen, maybe you have too, like where all of a sudden something starts to happen and, and someone looks, and someone else looks. I actually saw this uh, social experiment 
where someone was walking down the street of a big city and they just stopped and started looking up. They had two people looking up. And they got three, four. They have like 40 people standing on the sidewalk looking up for nothing. For no reason. What are we looking at? I don't know. How long am I going to stand here? How long it takes? <laughs> you know? And, it was, and then the guy who started it left. Because everybody else is still doing it. He just walked away. And they stood there for like an hour, half an hour, just staring until everybody finally goes, nobody knows what we're doing here, right? I mean, that's the condition we have as people, right? I've been in situations before there's been these kind of things happening, and you get swept up in it. You're like, I'm not even sure why I'm part of this, but I'm going to go do it. It's, it. It feels that way for us as humans. We want to participate. Now, that's the point, though, I guess, a little bit. It's not to say, well, the protesters are confused, and we can feel superior to them. That's not the point of it at all, right? The point is that sometimes we can get caught up in things, and we're screaming about stuff, and we don't really have a conviction about it. Yeah, I'm on that side. I heard a statement this week about Americans. They said, um, Americans uh, are more opinionated than people from other countries. But that's not it. As Americans, we're more opinionated, and we think everyone needs to hear our opinion. And so we go into, and I'm not making fun of us, we go into a foreign country, and we'll say, that ain't right. Let me tell you why that ain't right. And you may know nothing about the context, the culture, the situation. We have a tendency to take up sides. And, and we're confused. And we can be confused about what's really at stake. Well, in the middle of this riot, in the middle of this confusion, the Jews pushed this dude named Alexander to the front. And some of the crowd shouted instructions at Alexander. So Alexander motioned for silence to make some order and give a defense before the people. And by the way, the name Alex means defender of man, right? So he's going to defend the man. And uh, he was shoved to the front. I'm not sure if it's because of his name or what. And he motioned for silence in order to make so he gets all the right, calm down a minute. But as soon as they found out that he was Jewish, uh, they all shouted in unison for two hours straight. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, or of, yeah, of the Ephesians. And so the minute they find out that this guy isn't with us, they begin to shout him down too, right? So poor Alexander. That's all we hear about his story, but he just pops in there, and then uh, he shouted down. In verse 35, the city clerk uh, quieted the crowd and said, men of, Ephes men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and do not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed the temples, nor have they blasphemed our goddess. So it's kind of interesting, but they were getting it, but they, this is the clerk saying, hey, they're not blaspheming the goddess, and they're not stealing things from the temple, right? If then... Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anyone, the courts are open and for the proconsuls, the lawyers, and so they can go there and press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. And after he said this, he dismissed the assembly. And so, so we, he, he kind of calms them down. And he kind of assuages all their fears. He's like, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine, guys. But we're actually causing the trouble right now. And he talks them, talks them down. And I don't have much more to say about that except that, you know, it's kind of funny that Alexander gets shoved to the front and then no one listens to him. And then the city clerk, he kind of get the idea. I mean, I do. Like, he's a little pencil-pushing nerd kind of person. He's like, guys, guys, you're going to go to jail if you keep this up, <laughs> you know. Um, take it to the courts if there's a, a real grievance to be had. 
And so, so that kind of quads things down. Look at verse 20, chapter, chapter 20, verse 1. Uh, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said goodbye, and he set out for Macedonia. So Paul then moves on uh, on his journey after the riot. Um, let's see here. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months, because the Jews made a plot against him just as he was about to sail for Syria. He decided to go back through Macedonia. So Paul's continuous journey, right? He's just kind of cruising around, he's doing his thing, and he's still responding and, and reacting to things that are happening on the ground in real time. Verse 4. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Phyrus and uh, from Berea, uh, Aristocrus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derb, Timothy also, uh, and uh, Tychus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us. By the way, notice that, Paul, that um, Luke is traveling with Paul now. Waited for us at Tros. But we sailed from Philippi, after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later, he, we joined the others at Tros, where we stayed for seven more days. And so Luke is writing this firsthand account. He's with the Apostle Paul. He's traveling with him. And, uh, and again, this happens after the riot in Ephesus. Um, and so we have this kind of band of characters. But I wanted to kind of stop here, here at a moment and kind of notice uh, the people that were traveling with Paul. Because a lot of times we will say, well, Paul did this and Paul did that. But you, what you see here is that Paul traveled with a large group of people. And there's this um, image that we get from the scriptures that the, it's, it's a, uh, a diverse group of people. And so that's the next thing we actually wanted to say this morning was that the, the people of God are diverse. The people of God don't all look alike or talk alike or act alike. Um, they're diverse because, as the scriptures say, he's gathering for himself a people from all nations. Right? And it's a little subtle thing here, but I think it's important to, to notice it. And I kind of want to run through real quick and just kind of look at each of these guys. So there's uh, Sopater uh, from Berea. You remember the Bereans were the ones who examined the scripture more closely. And Paul had gone through there and he was committed them for examining, not just taking the word for it, but looking at the scriptures themselves, right? Well, Sopater, which means um, of a good father, right? So he had a good father, uh, was traveling with Paul now. So from Berea, he goes along with Paul on Paul's missionary journey. Then there's uh, Aristarchus, which means best leader. By the way, Aristarchus was one of the guys who was grabbed back in the riot. They snatched him whenever they were trying to find Paul. And, uh, and Secundus, uh, both from Th Thessalonica. And so those guys were picked up in Thessalonica as Paul is preaching. So they're kind of, it's almost like the image you get is like of a, of a snowball, right? It's just kind of picking up stuff off as it goes, picking people up and getting bigger and, and, and moving. It's getting its own motion here. Um, by the way, I never noticed before this week that there's a, a biblical name, Secundus. So if any of you are looking for baby names, I'm just putting it out there. It means second, in case you don't know. Secondus. Who are you, sir? I'm Secondus. Yes, you're Secondus again, brother. Um, that's a great name, man. You hear Secondus being used as a baby name. Uh, Gaius of Derb, another guy, right? Um, Timothy, we know a lot about Timothy, which means to honor God. He's from Lystra. And so Paul picked up Timothy on the way. So there's another person kind of in his posse of disciples who is following Jesus together. Um, Tychius, which means fortuitous or fortunate one, and Trophimus, which means maintenance or provider or food, both from Asia. And as a matter of fact, um, Lystra was part of, uh, of Asia as well, Asia Minor. And so 
get this idea that God is gathering a diverse witness for his glory as Paul goes on his missionary journey. And I just want to mention that to us because sometimes we have a tendency to self-select people that look like us or talk like us or act like us. And I think that's not biblical. I think the biblical truth is that often when you're following Jesus, you'll get in room with people, get in room with people, you'll be on mission with people who don't look like you. As a matter of fact, I was thinking about this and I thought, you know, the truth is that were it not for the gospel, these folks would never be together. They would likely never be together. The purpose they're together for is for the gospel. And this unique gathering with these unique people is, is for God's glory and for the proclamation of the good news. And so uh, God's people are diverse. Um, and again, the application is we ought to expect that the people who are following God to be a diverse group uniquely gathered for the purpose of the gospel. And therefore, we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. Well, these people aren't like me. Yeah, that's why they're here. <laughs> you know, um, that we follow God together from different backgrounds. So, kind of a cool little thing there. All right, here we go. Verse 7 then. Um, On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. I'm going to end with this, by the way. Uh, Paul spoke to the people, and because he had intended to leave the next day, he kept talking until midnight. So Paul's going to travel again, and he's concerned, and so he's going to speak to the people until he has to leave. He's very concerned. Uh, verse 8, there were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. There's the we again. And seated in the window was a young man named Icchius. Ick, no, Eucius, I'm just going to go with that, who was sinking into a deep sleep. The Greek said he was losing the battle with the sleep, right? Um, and as Paul talked on and on, he found himself fast asleep, and then he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. That's a crazy story in the Bible. That Paul's there, he's wanting to teach, you know, before he leaves, he's got a lot to say, he's not sure he's coming back, because you notice that Paul starts saying that, I might not be back, if God wills it, I'll be back, I might not be back. But he has a lot to say, and then in the middle of it, this kid falls asleep, falls out a window, and dies. And here's the last point. Long sermons can be deadly. <laughs> right? I remember one time, I had a family member uh, who was a church, a, a Bible, or a gospel-believing person, Jesus-believing person, but was sitting in the back of the church. Uh, yeah. And when he was given trouble for it, it wasn't my sermons, by the way, but he was a bit of a, uh, he, he has a bit of a personality, and he said, uh, I'm communing with the Holy Spirit. That's what he would tell people when he slept in church. Um, but here you have this idea that Paul, Paul has some important things to say, right? And he's going on and on and on. The word says dialoguing, on and on and on. And this young boy who's just out of it, he's been enough. By the way, it's funny it says that there were many lights up there. It means they were, the place was like lit up, right? Like they weren't trying to sleep. It's not like there was an excuse for this. And the kid falls asleep and he falls out the window, which is a tragedy. I mean, seriously, a tragedy. And he actually dies. Um, from this very long message that Paul's giving, or this very long instruction or dialogue conversation or whatever it is. So check it out. Paul runs down. He throws himself on top of the young man. He wraps his arms around him, which is such a great image, and he says, do not be alarmed. He's alive. He actually says, don't be alarmed. Life is still in him. That's the what he proclaims. And then he went back upstairs again, and he broke bread, and he ate. Now, check that out. After this, he talked until daybreak. <laughs> So Paul goes down, throws his arms, says he's still alive, and then goes back upstairs and keeps talking till the sun comes up. He's got some things to say. That is to say um, that there are things that need to be said, but there are times that 
it, it, it can be crazy. Or um, it can cause death. Seriously. Now get this, though. Because if we're bored, right? But look at what the word says. After talking until daybreak, he left. And the people took the young man home, and they were greatly comforted. They were greatly comforted. I'm sure they were comforted because he wasn't dead, right? I'm sure they were comforted because they had, had the time to spend with Paul. But here's what I want to end with this. <clears throat> and this is a real danger. It is easy to get bored with God. It's easy to get bored with God. And I've sat, and I'm not talking, I've sat with people who are believing the gospel, and I've been exhorted by a pastor, and I've been going, yes, yes. And everyone's just like, can we go? I got things to do, right? Now, I'm not talking about listening to sermons, man. I get it. Pastors, that should be for me. Long sermons, that's it, right? But listen, we ought not get bored with God. I want to just give you an encouragement today that if you find yourself going, yeah, I know Jesus died for the sins of all. I know, I know, I know. I want you to step back. If you're in that place, step back in your life and just spend time with God. Like, not doing something, not, but just being with him, right? Or, or maybe you need to read the scriptures again and be amazed. Maybe you need to pray, talk to God, because I can't think of few things more tragic in our lives. And I'm talking to myself too. I'm not telling, I'm not saying all oh, you, I'm saying us, when we get bored with what God is doing. What a tragedy. <laughs> Our father would be like pouring himself out and we're just like, ah, I can't listen to this anymore. I got other things to do. Whenever Paul goes down and throws his arms around the kid and says, uh, he's, he's, he's got life in him, he says, uh, don't be alarmed. It means don't have an internal riot about this. Don't, don't let that distract you from what God is truly doing here. Don't believe that this thing that, 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 that's now disrupted is the, is the point, right? And that's the, what we realize, that we can have a right inside or outside. Don't get distracted from the gospel. And so I just want to encourage you in that. If, if you're finding yourself bored, we're going to pray for that right now, and we're going to pray for those maybe who don't know Jesus as Savior, that that's, that's the life life right there. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the truth that we are in your house, in your presence at all times because you are with us. You are the God who does not abandon us nor forsake us. You're the God who came to be with us and to save us. And Father, for the times that we felt like, oh, if I have to hear another sermon or if I have to read another scripture, if I have to pray another prayer, Father, would you forgive us for that kind of an attitude towards you? And would you help us to be graceful to ourselves and give us permission to step back and kind of go... Yeah, you're the God that handles everything, everything, even our uh, exhaustion or even our boredom. Um, God, we want to follow you with everything we have, and we want to be renewed in you. If there are those here today that don't know you in this way, that don't know that they have this personal relationship like I have with you, that they can know you intimately and spend time with you all the days of their life, I pray that your Holy Spirit would break through this morning for your glory and their good that you would make, make your way into their heart and life and mind in a way that would be undeniable, that the gospel would break through and bring new life and push out false gods that have been worshipped for far too long. Thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the chance to worship you together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.